Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Welcome to the Federal Society's webinar call. In today's Courthouse Steps Decision webinar, we discuss Badro v. Walters. My name is Jenny Mahoney, and I'm Associate Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of the experts on today's call. Today, we are fortunate to have with us Bradley Hubbard and Elizabeth Kiernan. Brad Hubbard is a Senior Associate in the Dallas office of Gibson, Dunn, and Crutcher. He is a member of the firm's Appellate and Constitutional Law Practice Group. He was recognized by the Best Lawyers in America as one to watch in appellate practice. Liz Kiernan is also an Associate in the Dallas office of Gibson, Dunn, and Crutcher. She currently practices with the firm's appellate and constitutional law practice group as well, and has represented clients in trial and appellate proceedings in state and federal courts. Throughout the panel, if you have any questions, please submit them using the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen so that our speakers will have access to them for when we get to that portion of the webinar. With that, thank you for being with us today. Brad, the floor is yours. Great. Thanks so much, Jenny. And, and hello, everyone. Um, we're here to discuss uh, the court's decision in Badgerow against Walters. Um, in, in that case, an 8-1 court held that federal jurisdiction over a post-arbitration motion to confirm or vacate an arbitration award under the Federal Arbitration Act must exist independently of the underlying controversy. Controversy that there could have been federal jurisdiction over the underlying dispute that the parties arbitrated isn't enough. And so a little bit of, you know, I'd like to do a little bit of background to set the stage, and then Liz will talk a little bit about the circuit split that led to the grant uh, in Badgero, and then we'll spend a few minutes talking about, talking about the, the opinion and what it means going forward. Um, and so to start with the, with the background, nearly 100 years ago, Congress enacted the Federal Arbitration Act to overcome judicial resistance to arbitration, and the act declared a national policy favoring arbitration of claims that parties contract to settle in that matter. To that end, the act contemplates a role for the judiciary before, during, and after arbitration. So sections three and four of the FAA deal with pre-arbitration. Section three requires courts to stay in action if the issues involved is should be before an arbitrator. And section four provides a mechanism for compelling the other party to arbitration. Sections five and seven deal with issues that may arise during arbitration, including appointing or replacing an arbitrator and compelling witness attendance. And then sections nine, 10, and 11 all deal with the post-arbitration phase that is seeking judicial confirmation, vacater, or modification of an arbitration award. And so despite the fairly thorough regime that Congress established in the FAA, the act does not independently confer federal jurisdiction which means that there must be an independent, that is, non-FAA jurisdictional basis in order to bring an action under the FAA in federal court. You know, in, in 2009, sort of setting the background for how we got here, uh, the Supreme Court addressed this jurisdictional anomaly in Vaden against Discover Bank, which was a case that involved a motion to compel arbitration under Section 4. 
In Vaden, there was no diversity jurisdiction because the amount in controversy was too low. And Discover nevertheless argued that federal jurisdiction existed because the underlying dispute between the parties, the dispute Discover wanted to arbitrate, arose under federal law. It was a, a claim of, of uh, under the Federal Deposit Insurance Act. In a heavily textualist opinion, quote, the text of Section 4 drove our conclusion. Uh, Justice Ginsburg, writing for Justices Scalia, Kennedy, Souter, and Thomas, held the court should determine whether there's federal jurisdiction by looking through to the party's underlying dispute. That is, if there would be federal jurisdiction over that dispute, then there's also jurisdiction to compel that dispute to arbitration. That conclusion, the court held, was compelled by Section 4's language, which permits a party to move to compel arbitration in, quote, any United States district court, which, save for the arbitration agreement, would have jurisdiction of the subject matter of a suit arising out of the controversy between the parties. And although Vaden was a 5-4 decision, the dissenters, um, Chief Justice Roberts wrote, and he was joined by Justices Stevens, Breyer, and Alito, agreed that the look-through was appropriate, right? That a federal court asked to compel arbitration under Section 4 should look through the dispute over arbitrability to the underlying dispute between the parties in determining whether there is jurisdiction to grant the requested relief. And instead, the dispute in Vaden or the, or the, what led to the split was about the application of uh, a case called Holmes Group, Group against Fornado, which, uh, which deals with whether there's federal question jurisdiction predicated on, on counterclaims. Um, and so I'm going to turn it over to Liz with the, you know, the background is that the Vaden court said you could look through the dispute about arbitrability itself to the underlying dispute to determine whether there was federal jurisdiction. Thanks, Brad. So as Brad was explaining, there are several other moving pieces to the FAA, and Vaden just addressed one piece. How to determine jurisdiction when reviewing a Section 4 petition to compel arbitration. It didn't, though, provide any clarity on what to do with the post-arbitration petitions that are laid out in Sections 9, 10, and 11 of the FAA. And these involve the petitions to confirm, vacate, or modify an arbitral award. As expected, this quickly led to a split circuit. The first, second, fourth, and fifth circuits decided to extend the look-through approach of Baden to these post-arbitration petitions, meaning that when somebody moved to confirm, vacate, or modify an arbitral award, the court looked through the petition to the underlying uh, substantive controversy to determine if there was federal jurisdiction. The third and the seventh circuit, on the other hand, disagreed and said that based on the text of the uh, Section 9, 10, and 11 of the FAA, that uh, the look-through approach of Baden did not carry through. Um, as Brad mentioned, Baden was quite a textualist opinion. And the text is where the division of these circuits really turned. The language of section four differs from sections nine, 10, and 11. So, uh, as Brad already 
explains Section 4 of the FAA permits a party to compel arbitration pursuant to the arbitration agreement in any, quote, United States district court, which, save for such agreement, would have jurisdiction under Title 28 in a civil action or in an admiralty of the subject matter of a suit arising out of the controversy between the parties. That language about would have had jurisdiction of the controversy absent the agreement was important to the Bain Court and engendered the look-through approach. But that language is absent in sections 9, 10, and 11. So circuits like the Fifth Circuit, which is the circuit that Badro arises out of, had to turn elsewhere in order to extend Baden to these sections 9, 10, and 11. Those circuits grounded their decisions heavily in policy and the purpose of the FAI, usually rationalizing that there should be uniformity between the pre- and post-arbitral petitions and that the FAA heavily favors federal enforcement of arbitration agreements. For example, the Badro decision here relies on a prior Fifth Circuit decision in Quezada v. Bechtel that extended Baden's look-through approach to these motions for sections 9, 10, and 11 on the ground that the same jurisdictional analysis should apply to each section of the FAA because the FAA is, quote, a single comprehensive statutory scheme. The Fifth Circuit reached that decision over a sharp, sharp dissent by Justice Ho, Judge Ho, who explained that, quote, fidelity to text thus compels me to conclude that the district court lacked jurisdiction in this case. The Supreme Court later quotes this line of Judge Ho um, in its majority opinion about fidelity to text being key. With all that said, we arrive at the Badger dispute, and the facts of that case aren't overly important for our purposes here. So all you really need to know is that a Louisiana resident initiated an arbitration against her Louisiana employer, so there was no diversity jurisdiction, and she claimed unlawful termination under both federal and state law. After the arbitrators dismissed her claims, the plaintiff sued in state court to vacate the arbitral award. The defendant then removed the case to federal court based on the underlying federal employment claims and asked the court to confirm the arbitrator's decisions. So there was both a section um, nine, uh, 9 and 10 confirm and vacate motions pending before the federal district court. The Fifth Circuit, relying on its Quisada opinion, looked through and held it had jurisdiction over the underlying federal claims. And these underlying federal claims would be the only basis for jurisdiction in this case, because again, there was no diversity jurisdiction available. So this case brought the circuit, brought, brought the circuit split to the court. And in an eight to one decision this time, the court sued again very closely to the text holding that federal jurisdiction over a post-arbitration motion to confirm or vacate an arbitration award must exist independently of the underlying controversy. That there could have been federal jurisdiction over the underlying dispute that the parties arbitrated is not enough. Writing for the court, Justice Kagan stressed that the, quote, save for language that appears 
in section four and drove the analysis of Baden to, as Justice Ginsburg explained, imagine away the arbitration agreement and look to the underlying controversy doesn't appear in sections nine and 10 to confirm or vacate arbitral awards. While oral argument led many to believe that the court might find this case difficult due to the policy implications that pre-arbitral awards might be, uh, uh, motions might be available in federal court while post-arbitral awards won't be, and that only diversity cases for post-arbitral awards will be in federal court. Well, cases that might have been relying on federal question jurisdiction would be in state court. Uh, the opinion really demonstrates that for eight members of the court, the case was quite straightforward. The core analysis boiled down to a single paragraph that says section nine and 10 doesn't contain the same or even comparable look through language as section four did. And that resolves the case. The court in a lot of lines of its opinion seemed almost perplexed that the lower courts could have interpreted their president on FAA jurisdiction and their careful parsing of the text in Baden to lead to any other conclusion. Justice Kagan rebuked the idea that a court could elevate policy or practical implications over the text. Quote, saying, we have no warrant to redline the FAA. Importing Section 4's consequential language into provisions containing nothing like it. Congress could have replicated Section 4's look-through instruction in Sections 9 and 10, or, for that matter, it could have drafted a global look-through provision, applying the approach throughout the FAA. But Congress did neither, and its decisions govern. Um, another telling quote from the court is, comes when it's responding to some of the defendants' policy-based arguments, saying, quote, the top-line answer to those theories reflecting its obviousness, even the most formidable policy arguments cannot overcome a clear statutory directive. It is not for this court to employ untethered notions of what might be good public policy to expand our jurisdiction. However the pros and cons shake out, Congress has made its call. We will not impose uniformity on the statute's non-uniform jurisdictional rules. So the court heavily counseled, I think it's fair to read, uh, other courts not to be concerned about practical and purposivist arguments when the text of a statute is clear. And then writing all by himself is Justice Breyer. Uh, Justice Breyer dissented in this case. And the main difference between Justice Breyer's views and the majority's can be summed up by the first sentence of his dissent, which says, quote, when interpreting a statute, it is often helpful to consider not simply the statute's literal words, but also the statute's purposes and the likely consequences of our interpretation. And he reiterates that point of elevating the 
policy and purpose of the statute um, into consideration with the text by saying, quote, although this result may be consistent with the statute's text, talking about the majority's result, it creates what Vedan feared, curious consequences and artificial distinctions. It also creates what I fear will be the consequences that are overly complex and impractical. And so Justice Breyer really took the, pur uh, the purpose of the FAA and the so-called practical implications of not extending the literal approach to uh, heart and that underlies his entire dissent. And with that, I'm gonna throw it back to Brad who will discuss a little bit more about what this decision means for practitioners moving forward. Yeah, and so I think, you know, one of the most interesting parts of, of this decision is less its sort of substantive content and more um, what it says methodologically about where the court is. Um, you know, it was ju Justice Kagan writing, writing for an eight justice majority um, in an opinion that is both um, heavily textualist and uh, and heavily Federalist, right? Making making good on her assertion that we're all textualists now. Um, you know, decline to apply Vaden's look-through approach because the statutory basis for it, the language that Liz and I had discussed, wasn't there in sections nine and ten. And and not only did she look at the statutory language, but Justice Kagan sort of went out of her way to criticize Justice Breyer's dissent for failing to engage with the, the differences in statutory text between section four on the one hand and sections nine and 10 on the other hand. Um, and, and it actually quoted uh, Judge Ho's dissent from the, from the earlier Fifth Circuit opinion um, in his language about uh, fidelity to text and how that precluded uh, elevating quote, uniformity concerns over the statutory text. Um, and, you know, in addition to being a very textualist opinion, the opinion is also very um, is very federalist, right? The the practical effect of this decision is to push more post arbitration proceedings, that is, those that are seeking judicial confirmation of an arbitral award, uh, into state court, right? So, so in in the event where you you lack diversity jurisdiction. If you, if you then you cannot look through the underlying dispute uh, to find federal jurisdictions, so those cases will end up in in state court for confirmation. But as the court you know made clear in in Badgero and had made clear in, in Vaden, you know, the FAA as substantive federal law is binding on states, and state courts were you know the, the statute was designed to give state courts uh, a prominent role to play as enforcers of arbitration agreements. I think that's uh, I think that's it. Great. Liz, did I miss anything, or should we head on to? Uh, I think it looks like we've got a couple of questions. I think I think we're ready for questions. Thank All you, right. Brad and Liz. Um, and just a reminder to the audience: if you want to submit a question for our speakers today, please use the Q and A box that's located at the bottom of, the sc of your screen. Um, so the first question we have is: What is the status of federal question jurisdiction on motions to vacate if there is no look-through jurisdiction uh, for such motions? Uh, so there likely is not federal question jurisdiction in those. The, the one exception, right, is that Section Two of the FAA does independently confer federal jurisdiction with respect to awards under the Convention on the Recognition and Enforcement of Foreign Arbitral Awards. Um, but again, it doesn't otherwise um, 
doesn't otherwise confer confer independent federal jurisdiction. So even if a case involved, you know, if it was an employment case that involves the Title VII question, um, right? So the underlying dispute between the parties uh, involves a federal question. If, if there's not diversity, the motion to confirm will likely need to be in state court. Anything uh, to add, Liz? No, I think that's exactly right. Okay. Um, the next uh, question we have appears to be, let me just, I'll just read it from the Q&A box. Um, okay. So this is from David Wilson. Assume diverse parties and more than $75,000 in dispute. The award is in the respondent's favor with $0 awarded. The respondent seeks to confirm and enter judgment on the award. If the amount in controversy is measured based on the value of the award, there would be no diversity jurisdiction for the confirmation proceedings, right? If so, there would never be diversity jurisdiction for confirmation proceedings where the award findings, no liability or liability with, uh, I'm sorry, from $0 to $74,999 awarded. Uh, the like, short answer is yes. You know, a, a couple of other thoughts on that one, right? You could always take that, that, that to, to state court to get it confirmed if you wanted to. The other question is like whether you would need to get a $0 award confirmed, right? So, you know, there's an interesting set of, of, of cases about whether an arbitral award is entitled to a res judicata effect, right? Assuming you have a $0 award, you would, I assume, want to use that to prevent somebody from, you know, sue the same party from suing you again. So you'd want to say, right, they already brought their claims. But again, there's, you know, lines of cases about the, the preclusive effect of prior arbitral awards independent of confirmation. Um, and right, so the real reason people, the reason most people tend to take these awards to court for confirmation is to get help enforcing the judgment, right? Oftentimes, um, parties have no problem if parties just pay, you actually don't need to get an award confirmed because, um, you know, the party just pays and then that's over. If the party doesn't pay, right, the arbitrators lack the power, the coercive power of the state to attach assets. So you, you need to go to court. But again, if you, you don't have diversity jurisdiction, either because you don't have complete diversity or the amount of controversy, um, you know, as, as in the Badger case, they would just need to go to to state court to to fight about whether to um, whether to confirm or or vacate the award. I agree, I, but I do expect to see that this will probably be a question that comes up in the courts where somebody tries to confirm an arbitration and mentions that the original claim was for more than the seventy five thousand dollar threshold. And I think I think that's probably going back to substance, but. Um, of the original dispute, but I think that there will probably be some courts that will have to grapple with the question of whether or not you look to the original claim or the actual arbitral award to determine the amount of controversy. That's exactly right. And, and the other point to, to keep in mind as you're thinking about this is remember that the arbitration dispute itself is a quintessential state law question, right? It is is a question of, of contract and contract interpretation, right? What, what the fight is in court is the parties have contractually agreed about how to resolve disputes between them, including the underlying dispute. So it really should be no surprise that, you know, a, a, what is otherwise a run-of-the-mill state law contract question uh, can't get into federal court unless, uh, unless there's diversity jurisdiction. Uh, for our next question, can you talk a little bit about the interplay between Badro, Vaden, and a trial court's decision whether to stay or dismiss a case after compelling arbitration? 
Yeah, you know, absolutely. And I think there's a, you know, a handful of interesting issues that are, that are going on there. Um, right. And this involves, right. So you've got a, a case gets filed. Um, the other party moves to compel arbitration and, and they're successful in doing so. And the, and the, you know, sort of the first question about which there's a circuit split or an intra-circuit and intra-circuit split. And it, it may not be a split because like, you know, the fifth circuit says you can do, do both of these things, but it says, after ordering the parties to arbitration uh, under Section 4, you know, do we stay the action, which is what Section 3 contemplates, or we, do we dismiss the action because there's nothing left for the court to do? Um, like I said, so this, the Second Circuit has sort of laid out a position, and the Fifth Circuit has sort of said, well, you can dismiss it or you can stay it's up to the court. You know, and, and Badro makes that decision, you know, potentially even more consequential. So... Before Badgero, dismissal had the advantage, right, of getting rid of the case, so you're like out of the courts and fully into arbitration. But it had the disadvantage of turning what would have been a non-appealable interlocutory order compelling arbitration and staying the proceedings into a final appealable judgment because the case had been dismissed. Right? You could only that you could only challenge uh, that decision compelling arbitration. Uh, after the arbitration was over and you would come back into court uh, to confirm or vacate the award. After Badgerow, the, the stay versus dismiss question might also impact a party's ability to return to federal court to confirm an award, right, if the federal jurisdiction to compel arbitration uh, was premised on looking through to the underlying dispute in the first place, right? Um, so I think it's a, it's a super interesting question, and that'll be a, a place really to watch the courts and see what they end up doing there now that it's uh, now that that's all in play. Liz, do you have anything that you wanted to add to that? No, I think okay. I've completely covered that. I know he's very interested in that question. So. Okay. Um, and then you mentioned early on in your analysis that the split involves sections 9, 10, and 11. Uh, but then you only seem to discuss sections 9 and 10 in the Badgerow case. Was section 11 involved? Um, if not, do we think that a court's decision covers that too? Uh, that's a good question. It is not. It was not involved in the Badgerow case. Uh, each side only moved to confirm or vacate the arbitral award, so the motion to modify was not involved. However, uh, the courts below, when they were uh, addressing these questions, generally addressed them all together and suggested that they uh, all rose and fall together because none of them contain the Section 4 language about save for the arbitration agreement. So um, in the court's opinion, it didn't directly address Section 11, but even in its background um, analysis, when it was giving the lay of the land and what was going on, it did actually, just like the lower courts, kind of lump all three of uh, the motions to uh, confirm, vacate, or modify under Sections 9, 10, and 11 together. And so did Justice Breyer in his dissent. He heavily mentioned Section 11 as well. So. Um, Based on Justice Kagan's uh, opinion, which heavily focuses on the text and the fact that Section 4 was very unique in the language it chose to use to create this look-through, um, I would expect that Badro, well, many courts will consider Badro as controlling the Section 11 question as well. 
Okay. Um, thank you, Liz and Brad. I don't see any other questions from the audience. Uh, so I think I just want to, on behalf of the Federal Society, thank both of you uh, for the benefit of your valuable time and expertise today. And I also want to thank our audience for joining and participating. We also welcome listener feedback by email at info at fedsoc.org. As always, keep an eye on our website and your emails for announcements about upcoming virtual events. Thank you all for joining today. We are adjourned. Thank you for listening to this episode of Telefor, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.